Previously, on The Secret Life of Death, Episode 4, Langmaid, Part 3. We saw what the effects this vicious 1875 crime had on the communities of the victim, Josie Langmaid, and the perpetrator, Joseph LePage, a French-Canadian immigrant. We learned more about the Langmaid family themselves. They were a successful and prominent farming family who had seen more than their fair share of sadness. Josie's murder wasn't the first tragedy endured by the Langmaids, and unfortunately, it wouldn't be their last, as only two months after Josie was murdered, her brother Waldo died of pneumonia. The Langmaids already had to start over once before, and in the face of the circus of grief and mourning in which they found themselves, what would they do now? What would become of the Langmaids of Pembroke? I'm Gail Golick, and this is The Secret Life of Death, Episode 4, Langmaid, Part 4. By 1880, the Langmaids' lives had yet again taken another sharp right-hand turn. Census records show Sarah and the three younger girls, Grace, Elizabeth, and Abby, living in Pembroke, still on Buck Street, among Sarah's extended family. Sarah is listed as head of house in this document, which is unusual for the time but not unheard of. Widows, for instance, are often left to run a household when their husband dies. But Sarah isn't listed as a widow, because James was very much alive, living some 430 miles away in Yellow Medicine County, Minnesota. He was living with the family of Benjamin and Susan Pillsbury, along with Susan's 11-year-old nephew, Fred Gillingham. It all seems a strange clump of disconnected bits at first glance. What is James doing in Minnesota without his recently bereaved family? Why Minnesota, of all places? And who is this Pillsbury family he's living with? But with a little more investigation, it appears these disconnected bits were part of a larger plan. And by the year 1880, Five years after Josie's murder and Waldo's death, two years after Josie's killer, Joseph LePage, was hanged, the Langmaid's plan was being put into action. James had always been a farmer, and based on his reported real estate holdings and cash on hand while living both in Chichester and Pembroke, New Hampshire, he was an exceptionally successful one. To become a successful farmer anywhere is difficult, but to be successful in New Hampshire was really saying something. Weather conditions were often poor and unpredictable. And short of the scant sections of river-bottom acreage, soils tended to be thin 
full of rocks and fatigued quickly. With much of the rest of the available land being side-hilly and bordered by jagged, steep-sided outcroppings, even the richest, most dedicated farmer would be lucky to cop together a few hundred acres in New Hampshire. But at this point in our country's history, the Midwest had begun to establish itself as a powerhouse of agricultural production. Combine that with the ease of transport of goods that the railroad provided, and places like Minnesota suddenly seem like a perfectly logical place to attract New Englanders with an eye on farming, means, connections, and a desire to make a name for themselves. Or to make themselves over. And it's within that context that the connection between James Langmaid and Benjamin and Susan Pillsbury starts to make sense. For Benjamin and Susan Pillsbury, and Susan's nephew Fred, were New Hampshire transplants too, from towns about 25 miles northwest of Pembroke. They had lived in Yellow Medicine County, Minnesota, a fast-growing region 120 miles due east of Minneapolis, in 1878. Benjamin and Susan Pillsbury had begun buying up land around Yellow Medicine County long before their arrival, and were already well-established dealers in real estate and grain when James arrived in 1880. They, like James, had been successful farmers back east, and so had capital to invest in the large-scale agricultural opportunities the wide-open prairies of Minnesota had to offer. And they had connections. Mention the name Pillsbury to anybody in the Midwest in 1880, and they would know immediately who you meant. For as successful as Benjamin and Susan Pillsbury were in Yellow Medicine County, they were nothing compared to the rest of Benjamin's family. One of his brothers, John, who had moved out to Minnesota years before, was a two-term governor of the state. Nephew Charles, along with Benjamin's other brother, George, started a flour milling and distribution company in Minnesota. They were those Pillsbury's, as in the Pillsbury Doughboy Pillsbury's. The only thing that can be said with certainty as to how the Langmaids and the Pillsbury's became acquainted is that they likely met in New Hampshire before their mutual exodus to Minnesota. There were no direct familial connections that could be found between any of the branches of these groups, or that they were neighbors, went to the same church, or even belonged to the same denomination. Two things that the families did have in common were their draw to public service and their prominence within their respective communities in regards to business. Even before the Pillsbury family moved to Minnesota, they were quite well known in New Hampshire. Benjamin had been a selectman for the town of Sutton, as well as a state senator. Brother George had been on the town council for Concord for many years before being elected to two consecutive terms as mayor of the city. James Langmaid had also been a selectman for Pembroke, as well as a justice of the peace. Perhaps their mutual interest in local and state government and business practices were enough cause for them to cross paths. After all, Concord and Pembroke were adjacent towns, 
and likely to have shared interests. But of course, it's unbelievable that the Pillsburys wouldn't have been aware of the murder of Josie Langmaid, as sensational and widely reported as it was within New Hampshire and the region. And the first trial of Joseph LePage took place in Concord in 1877, while George Pillsbury was mayor. Plus, George had been on the commission that oversaw the building of the state prison that held LePage and executed him. Given that this murder, trial, and execution would have been the most important thing to happen in his city, it would have been incredible if George Pillsbury hadn't somehow been drawn into its sphere at some point. The entire Pillsbury family had been rich and successful in New Hampshire, but they were also charitable. Like many of the nouveau riche of the Gilded Age, they donated money to causes near and dear to them for things that benefited their communities at large. They gave money for an organ at their beloved Baptist church and for an illuminated clock face to sit atop the Board of Trade building for the city of Concord. So, could the Lang made Pillsbury connection be as simple as one successful, service-oriented family, themselves, setting out to start a new life of farming in Minnesota, offering a hand to a fellow New Hampshireite with a similar pedigree, who happened to have suffered an unimaginable string of bad luck? Perhaps. James began their new Midwest agricultural empire outside of the city of Granite Falls, Minnesota, by buying one large farm of 300 acres and then adding to it over time. He soon had 600-plus acres of good, arable land and added even more by buying up farms from Minnesotans leaving for the Nebraska land rush. By 1891, James reported 1,600 acres straddling the Minnesota River, planting 450 acres to wheat, 100 acres to corn, 50 acres to barley, 100 acres to flax, and the rest in pasture and stockyard. These acreage totals were extensive even by Midwest standards at the time, and unheard of back in his native New Hampshire. By the end of the 1880s, the Langmaids were one of the two largest landowners in Minnesota Falls Township. An 1893 story in the local newspaper, The Tribune, reported that the Langmaid stock farm raised so many head of sheep and cattle that they purchased three miles of wire and slat fence to contain them all. In 1891, Sarah and the three girls finally joined James in Minnesota. Ostensibly, they had stayed in Pembroke until James could get things set up for them in Minnesota and so that the girls could finish schooling at Pembroke Academy. It may seem strange that, in what was likely their most dire hours of need, they would choose to split the family up. But perhaps it was necessary. Understandably, after all that had happened to them, the Langmaids had no interest in staying in New Hampshire for the rest of their lives. And when a new opportunity was presented to start over hundreds of miles away, they did whatever they had to do to make it happen. And if that meant that Sarah and the girls 
stayed in Pembroke with her family for 11 years while James set up that new life in Minnesota, then so be it. The strain on James and Sarah's relationship, brought on by the constant flow of tragedies, can only be imagined. Add to that the everyday difficulties of a life raising three small children and running a farm, and Sarah and James might have welcomed some distance between them. When Sarah and the Lang made children got to Minnesota, Grace was 21, Elizabeth, or Lizzie, was 19, and Abby was 17. And that new life that had been put on hold for 11 years was finally able to begin. And something that went a long way to easing their transition into that new life was that when the Langmade women arrived in Minnesota, they were but a few of thousands of East Coast transplants and Northern European immigrants flocking to the Midwest at the turn of the century. That degree of anonymity among the rapidly changing demographics was likely a breath of fresh air for the Langmaids. They all eventually settled on a farm in Section 24 in the southeast corner of Minnesota Falls Township, overlooking the Minnesota River. Between 1898 and 1899, they had a new home built on this site that was reported to be one of the finest farm homes in all the state. It would later be known as the farm between two rivers and was set up to reflect their New England roots, per Sarah's request. In 1894, youngest daughter Abby enrolled in the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, graduating in 1898 with a degree in economics and education. That same year, middle daughter Lizzie married local Hiram Potter, and they stayed in Minnesota Falls on a farm of their own close to Lizzie's family. By 1900, as James aged, the running of the farm was passed on to Fred Gillingham, nephew of Benjamin and Susan Pillsbury, the same young man James had lodged with some 20 years before when he arrived in Minnesota. Eldest daughter Grace would marry Fred sometime between 1900 and 1902, and they stayed on the family farm with her parents and youngest sister. As James stepped back from day-to-day -day farm operations, he expanded his interests into other business ventures in town, becoming a vice president of the Yellow Medicine County Bank for a short time before his death in December of 1902 at the age of 69. James's body was sent back east and laid to rest in the Buck Street Cemetery in Pembroke, New Hampshire, with his first wife, Mary Ann, and their four children, Ella, Clarence, Josie, and Waldo. After James died, portions of land on the Langmaid farm were sold, but the bulk of the land holdings remained with Sarah and the three daughters, though the number of stock animals was reduced significantly. Mother Sarah, daughters Abby and Grace, and her husband Fred all stayed on the family farm, with Fred carrying on his duties as foreman. Sarah Cochran Langmaid stayed on her family farm with Abby and Grace and Fred until her death 
in 1930 at the age of 85. She was buried in the Doncaster Cemetery in Granite Falls, Minnesota. After Sarah's death, Grace and Fred stayed on the family farm and continued to operate and manage the majority of the landholdings. They appeared to stay at the Langmaid residence throughout the 1940s and 50s, taking in boarders and farm workers as they had no children of their own. Grace Langmaid Gillingham passed away in 1959 at the age of 89, and Fred in 1966 at the age of 97, and they too are buried at the Doncaster Cemetery in Granite Falls. Abby Langmaid's life out in Minnesota was emblematic of the opportunities for women of means at the turn of the century. Abby didn't marry and could afford an education. She pursued advanced degrees in education throughout the 19 aughts. And with an apparent appetite for travel, Abby took a grand tour of Europe in 1914 and continued traveling when she came home moving around the Midwest with jobs as temporary school teachers, assistant principals, and social workers, all the while keeping the Langmaid farm as her home base. In 1930, after the death of her mother, Abby stayed in Minnesota Falls for a year and tried to run a portion of the farm that she had been willed, but by 1931, she was back on the road teaching. In 1940, Abby was on the move again, working in Iowa as an executive secretary. She passed away in 1946 at the age of 72 and was buried next to her mother in the Doncaster Cemetery. Lizzie Langmaid Potter and husband Hiram were also farmers, having had different farming operations in Minnesota Falls Township over the years. They would have two children while living in Minnesota Falls, Lizzie and Robert, and by 1920, they had moved their family out to a farm in Montana. By 1930, they were living in Wyoming, with their now adult children nearby. At some point, Lizzie and Hiram separated, and by 1940, she was back in Minnesota Falls Township, where she passed away in 1948 at the age of 76, buried in the Doncaster Cemetery with her mother and sisters. The only one of the Langmaid daughters to have had children, Lizzie's daughter, Lizzie Langmaid Potter O'Toole, inherited the Langmaid farmhouse when her Aunt Grace died, and she and her husband were still living there in the early 1970s. Today, that house still stands, on a bluff overlooking the Minnesota River, part of the Upper Sioux community, a federally recognized Native American reservation. A reservation. Interesting. If you'll indulge me, I'd like to take you on a little historical aside. The Langmaids, like the rest of the European and Euro-American transplants that came out to Minnesota for a new life, were very much living in the excitement and possibility of the here and now, or the there and then, if you will. In the face of all that opportunity, they likely never stopped long enough to wonder how so much amazing farmland was up for the taking, only that it was. 
This topic of westward expansion and land availability in the Midwest in the mid to late 1800s is often presented as an exciting part of our nation's history. But what gets glossed over in many accounts of this very American moment in time is that the reason James Langmaid and millions of others found so much wide-open prairie land ripe for the taking was because someone else had already taken it. The Langmaid story brings us to Yellow Medicine County, Minnesota in 1880, but land rights issues in that region started long before that. In 1851, the Treaty of Traverse des Sioux was signed. This was a treaty between the United States government and bands of the Dakota Sioux Tribe, or Eastern Sioux, indigenous native people that were living within their ancestral homeland in what was then known as the Minnesota Territory a large swath of the upper Midwest that roughly included portions of present-day Minnesota, Iowa, and the Dakotas. With this treaty, the Dakota Sioux ceded large tracts of territory and agreed to move onto two reservations along the Minnesota River, Upper Sioux Agency near Granite Falls, Minnesota, and Lower Sioux Agency, 30 miles south near present-day Redwood Falls, in exchange for annuities of cash and goods totaling $1.6 million from the United States government. Local and federal officials pushed hard for this treaty, as it would allow them to gain control over acres and acres of agricultural lands and then make them available to more European immigrants and East Coast settlers. This treaty, combined with others in the region at the time, ceded close to 24 million acres of land to the U.S. federal government. Almost immediately, the government began to renege on some of its responsibilities laid out by the treaty. The food and supplies promised were often late or of poor quality and never seemed to provide enough for all the people they were supposed to support. And because of the limits placed on the Dakota Sioux by current and previous treaties and the lack of a consistent flow of funds promised by the government, many Dakota Sioux accrued debts at regional trading posts. And unbeknownst to the Dakota Sioux, the government, either by omission or by their deliberate mistranslation of the details, managed to slip into the treaty a provision that allowed the government to directly pay a third party, a.k.a. the traders at the forts with whom the Dakota Sioux had debts, with the added stipulation that allowed these debts to be settled either by the government annuity cash or by the debt holder taking reservation land. By the 1860s, the Dakota Sioux were starving. And still, despite having signed away their rights to millions of acres of lands to the whites, they were constantly clashing with Euro-American settlers encroaching on their reservations. Tensions erupted in war between the Dakota Sioux and the United States. The Dakota War of 1862 began in August in and around the land designated as the reservations of the Upper and Lower Sioux Agencies. 
the Dakota Sioux had begun striking out at many Euro-American settlements in the region, killing settlers, instilling fear, and causing many settlers to leave the area. The federal government's response was quick and severe. By December of 1862, the raids by the Dakota Sioux were stopped when the army captured hundreds of Dakota Sioux men, whether they participated in the raids or not, and interred their families at various military forts. A military tribunal sentenced 303 Dakota Sioux men to death for their actions. President Abraham Lincoln commuted the sentences of 264 of the men, but left 38 Dakota Sioux to hang. It was the largest mass execution in the country's history. By April of 1863, the rest of the Dakota Sioux were forcibly removed from Minnesota and sent south to Nebraska and west to South Dakota. That year, the United States Congress dissolved the reservations at Upper and Lower Sioux agencies, opening up all of that land along the Minnesota River to settlement and development by immigrants and East Coast transplants. And this is where the Langmaids come in. They were Easterners with business experience, some means, and connections. And they took hold of this opportunity presented them in Minnesota and started a new life. By the 1930s, policy and attitudes had begun to change. And in 1938, 746 acres of original Dakota Sioux land in Minnesota were returned. And in Minnesota Falls Township, the Upper Sioux Indian community was established. Through years of struggle with generational poverty and systemic racism, the Upper Sioux community is today a sovereign entity with its own constitution, elected board of elders, and police force. Stipends from the federal government were not enough to address some of the basic issues in the community, so they developed their own source of income, the Prairie's Edge Casino. The financial independence from the casino revenue has provided housing for the community's 453 residents and has allowed the community to reacquire over 900 of their pre- and post-1851 reservation tribal lands, including much of the land that once comprised the Lang made stock farm and family home. It's a place that the Upper Sioux community refers to as this land we call Pajuhu Tazizi Kapi, the place where they dig for yellow medicine. There are a lot of things that can be taken away from the story of the Langmaids. First, from the standpoint of storytelling, it's a gem, ready-made with gruesome, terrifying gore and intrigue. No need to exaggerate or embellish. It really happened that way. Second, it's the quintessential true crime allegory. It scratches that itch in the way that only the best true crime can. By learning about the crime, why it happened, how it happened, to whom it happened, we feel smart and savvy, ready, should we ever find ourselves in an unsafe situation. Whether or not that safety pans out in future interactions, I don't know. How do you prove a negative? 
but at least it serves the function of making us feel more comfortable in the present. And third, it reminds us of the importance of historical inclusion and completeness. Far too often, we speak of history as events, which implies they were singular, existing alone, independent of space and time. But what we're really talking about with these events are crescendos in a timeline, crisis moments that precipitate a particular activity into our consciousness. Long before Josie crossed paths with Joseph LePage on that day in 1875, he had been hopscotching across Canada and Vermont in an attempt to avoid the repercussions of his previous assaults and murders. It's only in Pembroke, New Hampshire, that all of those pieces came together and a collective awareness was raised. And just as the story didn't begin with Josie's murder, it didn't end with it. When the Langmaids decided to leave New Hampshire, it was a statement that they wanted to move on, and some things would be left behind. Those back in Pembroke, still surrounded by all of those reminders of that terrible day back in 1875, took up the torch of Josie's memory and carry it still, not instead of the Langmaid family, but on their behalf. And the Langmaid timeline continued, fading out from their old community and history in New Hampshire and merging with an existing one in Minnesota. They bought hundreds of acres of land on the Minnesota River in Minnesota Falls Township and began a farm. Land they were able to acquire because of the government's practices with the Dakota Sioux 18 years before. Now, none of what the Dakota Sioux suffered was the fault of the Langmaids themselves. They didn't engage in the fighting or send money or supplies personally to support the federal troops. But they certainly did benefit from its outcome. Ironically, in much the same way, their own Euro-American ancestors back east benefited from the wars and underhanded dealings with the indigenous people a couple hundred years before. And they weren't the only ones, certainly. And there's no doubt that the Langmaids worked hard for all they achieved. But we've gotten away with attributing the success of people like the Langmaids as another form of those isolated historic events. No before, no after, just plopped in the middle of time. But be it horrific crime, or one of these pulled-up-by-their-own-bootstraps efforts, none of them occur in a vacuum. History occurs on the backs, sometimes quite literally, of those that came before. And while it's uncomfortable to confront the horrors and shameful things in our history and culture, failure to do so only allows shameful acts to turn into myth and myth into dogma, often with the unintended consequence of elevating perpetrators to a revered status while overlooking their victims. At the core of this story is a 17-year-old girl who, through no fault of her own, became the target of a very sick man for reasons we can never really know. Certainly, there was some twisted psychological force that fueled LePage, but in the end, 
it comes down to something as commonplace as a man taking out his rage on a woman just because he can. That doesn't occur in a vacuum either. This has been The Secret Life of Death, Episode 4, Langmaid, Part 4. Special thanks for this episode go to Jennifer Vanell and Badger Studios for musical performance and arrangement. Jennifer Disbrow at the Yellow Medicine County Historical Society in Yellow Medicine County, Minnesota for document reference and research. And thanks to the Pembroke Historical Society, Pembroke, New Hampshire, and Denver Percussion, Denver, Colorado. For more information about this show, visit our website at thesecretlifeofdeath.com. And for weekly extras and fun photos, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Enjoy this show on any of these podcast platforms. Apple Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and Radio Public. <laughs>